Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and welcome to episode 829 with Casey Mank. If you've ever had the experience of writing an email and folks don't seem to be reading it or folks ask you follow-up questions or don't comply and you think, what the heck was in the email? Casey's got some pro tips to boost your writing of emails and everything you'll write. So you'll learn one, why writing matters tremendously for professionals, even if you're not a writer. Two, how to make your writing more powerful in just three steps. And three, why people aren't reading what you wrote and how to fix that. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've mentioned, please visit us over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP829. And if this is your first time listening to How to Be Awesome at Your Job, thank you. Welcome. It's great to have you. There's often a big bump of folks joining the fun in the early part of the year, January. So I want to give you a little bit of an overview of some of the goodies available at awesomeatyourjob.com. And if you've heard this hundreds of times, dear loyal listeners, feel free to skip ahead a minute or two while I give the spiel. And thank you for listening for so long. It's great to have you as well. So here's a scoop over at awesomeatyourjob.com. We got so much good stuff that helps complement the audio experience of the show itself. So if you want the transcripts, we got them. If you want to follow up on a tool or a link or a thingy that we've mentioned here, it's a good chance that we have linked that right there. So you can do a quick click over on the website. And then we also have every episode tagged by the topic and the competency that we've covered. So if you're focusing in on creativity or leadership stuff or communications, you can find all the episodes associated with that topic, subtopic, or competency. We code it uh, two different ways for you there, as well as getting a summary write-up of the actionable wisdom the guest shares in an email you can read in about two or three minutes. We call those the gold nuggets. And when you sign up for the gold nuggets, you unlock the whole vault, the archive of all 829 of these summary write-ups so you can access them on demand on the website whenever you want to, as opposed to just waiting for the emails to come each time. There's also a 10 Days to Winning at Work email course, which helps figure out how to slash through wasted time and effort at work so you have more fun, more impact while you're there. And if you want to get oriented to the show in general, what kinds of stuff are we talking about? Check out the very beginning of the feed with episode 000, start here, and then A, B, C, D, E, F. Those would be maybe if you flip the sort order in your podcast player or just scroll, scroll, scroll to get to the very beginning. You can get a taste for the different sorts of topics that we are covering here and have some fun that way. Now, here's a little bit about Casey. Casey has taught in writing classrooms for over 10 years, most recently at Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business and School of Nursing and Health Studies. She's taught writing to professionals or organizations, including Kellogg's, MasterCard, Sephora, the Aspen Institute, Viacom Media, the EPA Office of the Inspector General, the PR Society of America, the National Association of Government Communicators, and many more. Casey serves on the board of directors at the nonprofit Center for Plain Language and is proud to have helped thousands of writers get to the point and reach their audiences with greater impact. Big thanks to Casey for sharing her wisdom with us and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. 
One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Casey. Casey, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, I'm so excited to talk about writing well. And I learned that even though you do a lot of great teaching of writing, you don't actually like writing. Is this true? And can you elaborate on this? This is true. And I also think it's really important. I try to tell people this as much and as often as I possibly can, actually, because I think one of the many misconceptions about being a good writer is that good writers are the people who love writing, that it comes naturally to you. You're born with it. It's an art. It's a gift. It's an inborn talent. And so sometimes like people will say, oh, well, you must just love writing or like you're a writer. And I'm like, who are they talking about? Are they talking about me? I don't love to do this. Writing is hard. It's not fun to write or edit. And so I think it's important that people know, even though I teach this stuff, I think I'm pretty good at it. I can be effective at it. I don't enjoy the process of writing stuff. I too find it kind of hard and unpleasant. So we're really, it's important to us to always teach people that writing is something that can be very quantified and very strategic and just about getting the job done. And in fact, I think writers who are able to see it that way are often much more effective. Sometimes when I meet people in the course of my work who say like, oh, I love writing. Those are the people that want to include a lot of extra flowery language and end up with bad business writing, ironically. So Mm -hmm. that's what that means to me. Okay, so I really love that and find that encouraging because there are times in which I have writing that needs to be done, but I am not feeling it. And so sometimes I will procrastinate because there are times that I do feel it, but noting that, no, it's okay for this to be hard and unpleasant, that's that. And I don't remember who said it, this quote, was it David Allen or, or someone who says, I don't enjoy the process of writing, but I very much enjoy having written. Yep. Like you've accomplished that thing and you're beholding the final product and you go, oh, nice. <laughs> and so that's a good feeling. Absolutely. Yeah. And if people like writing, that's great. But I want the people that don't like writing or never feel motivation to also know that they can just do it in a workhorse way and it can have great results for sure. Okay, cool. Well, inspiration landed. Thank you. And <laughs> can you tell us in a business context or for professionals, just what's at stake as to whether one writes fine, okay, versus masterfully, like in the top one, two, three percent of business professionals. How much does that matter? Absolutely. So the important thing to know about writing is that we're all doing it. And we meet a lot of people that might say like, oh, I'm not really a writer. I'm not in a writing role at work, but it doesn't matter what your job is at work. At some point, you need to put the things you've done and communicate their value in writing. So Mm -hmm. if you are a researcher and you have to write a report, 
if you're a salesperson and you have to send sales emails, like even if that's not what you think of as your main job, at some point you're conveying the value of the work you do in a written format. So actually when people read the way that you describe what you do, if you're great at what you do, you're the best, but your writing isn't very good, they tend to judge your competence if they don't know you on how you describe what you've done. Yeah. They don't know you and they're just reading this like lackluster description of what you've done or what you've produced and the way you express yourself isn't clear. It's not confident, whatever. They're thinking like, wow, I bet this person isn't great at their job. And that might not be true, but actually it's like that. It's like fumbling in that last mile when you're conveying the results of all your great work can be huge. So that is very well said. I've heard it said that there's research suggesting people judge the effectiveness of a leader or professional who's leading a meeting based on how well that meeting is going. Just because that's what's visible. It's like, okay, there you are leading the meeting. This meeting is going poorly. You must not be good at your job, which is maybe fair or unfair (laughs) based on any number of, of dimensions. Much like it with the writing, I find that there's a number of Amazon products. I've had this experience where I see something, it looks pretty good. I was like, oh, okay, this looks like just what I need. Okay, that's a good price. Oh, it looks beautiful. Oh, it's got 14,000 <laughs> reviews and they're averaging like 4.7 or something. Okay, this, this looks great. But then when I see that the English is off, it's like, it's not quite right. And it's like, nobody would say it that way. Yeah. This is about a Renfo cordless jump rope. It says, with a cordless ball, a rope jump can easy to change into a cordless model, imitating skipping with a real rope without actually needing to swing a rope. The low-impact equipment offers people who don't have a large room to work out a way. It's like, okay, there's a couple moments in there. It's like, that's not right and smooth. And so then I begin to wonder, well, if things are fuzzy here when you're trying to sell me, Like where else have they cut corners in terms of like the manufacturing or the safety or the quality or the durability when that may be a completely unfair judgment. It's like, hey, this was written by someone in China. English is not their native language and they did their best and it wasn't too bad. But I'm like, "Mm, I don't know about this jump rope anymore based on what I've read here. Absolutely. Doesn't it make you feel like the person who wrote that has never seen a jump rope in their life? Maybe. And you just start to feel suspicious about their expertise about jump ropes. Well, it does. So I guess that that could be fair. It could be unfair. But nonetheless, that it's a reality. Right. In terms of people are, are judging us based upon the quality of our writing, whether it's in an email or a PowerPoint, it's there. And so... Okay, I'm with you. We got to take care of some business. That's absolutely right. Okay. Yeah. And whether it's true or accurate or not, it doesn't matter. You've already created that impression in that person's mind and their ideas about you, their expectations, their perception of your personal brand. It's really in a split second that that stuff can happen when they're reading what you've written about your work. Yeah. Okay. Well, so then you're on the board of an organization with a really cool name, the Center for Plain Language. Tell us, what is this organization and what is plain language and how do we do that? That's right. Well, so our hope as plain language experts, and I will happily tell you more about it, but our hope would be that the name that we give to anything would be completely self-explanatory. So what do you think the Center for Plain Language does? (laughs) I think they work with people and organizations to facilitate more plain language being used in documents and websites, et cetera. That's exactly right. That's what we do. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I'm really down with that vision. Likewise, 
Casey, I'm going to put you on the spot. What do you think the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast is about? <laughs> I think you all genuinely have a really plain language title for your podcast because it instantly tells me that it's going to be, when I listen to it, it's going to teach me how to do my job better. Mm-hmm. And then if I dig into the details a little bit, I would start to find out how exactly that's going to happen. Yeah, But it's very self-explanatory, which we love in plain language. I do too. I do too. So is there a bit of a, a process in terms of certain steps or best practices by which you arrive at plain language? Absolutely. Yeah. So you want to start out when you're writing anything. And plain language really did start with a lot of government writing, a lot of sort of manuals, legal documents, things like that. But I believe it can be applied to anything. So start out whatever document you're crafting. You're going to think about not yourself, not your organization, not the information you want to include, actually. You're going to think about the person who's going to use this document. Mm -hmm. So yeah, get to know them. We start with them. Think about the person who's going to use this. Think about exactly what they already know, what their top questions are, and what they need to do. So whatever you're writing, I don't care what it is, what do they need to do once they read it? How are they going to use it? And then you design your document. There's a lot of best practices that we get into around how things look, how usable things are, how easy they are. And then of course, the readability. So plain language people tend to think it's going to be about like short sentences and easy words. That's only half of it. The other half is actually a lot of UX design. So making documents really easy and fast to use. And I'm happy to direct your listeners to where they can learn more of all those best practices. But then the key to really like close the loop on all of this is you made some assumptions about your audience in the beginning. You tried your best to do great design, very readable writing. But at the end of the plain language process, you must test your assumptions. So this is really like the key piece that most people want to ignore. They're like, well, I thought about my audience. I think I know what's going to work for them. And I think I did it. And then they like hit send on their document, hit publish on their document. But in plain language content, you have to test before you finalize. So you get a couple people, you show the document to them, you say, read this. Then you take the document away from them and you say, what did you just read? And they explain it back to you. And you get invaluable information from that. You make changes based on what they missed, what they misunderstood, what they thought was the most important thing, but it wasn't what you actually (laughs) wanted them to focus on. You make changes and then you actually finalize. So that's kind of the plain language process in a nutshell. I like that a lot. And I think you've absolutely nailed it in terms of the final step. I think it's taken me a while to get here, Casey, but I'm firmly here now. There's no substitute for that. It is irreplaceable. It is mission critical. When it counts, I mean, like if you're writing, the thing that you're writing matters and you want it to have an impact as opposed to, hey, this is a joke to some friends. Even then, I probably want it to have an impact. I want them to laugh. But if they don't, it's like, no big deal. But I remember just recently, I was writing an Evite invitation for our son's baptism. And my wife went in there and she said, oh, I think this made me think that and this made me think that. And then so she she changed some things. And I think it takes a bit of humility to understand that that is absolutely necessary. It doesn't mean that I'm dumb or wrong. And at the time, I think I was looking at a lot of other editing things in my life. And I was actually just so grateful that I said, thank you, honey. This is exactly what has to happen. And there is no other way. <laughs> I kid you not, I said those words to her. She's like, this is kind of dramatic, Pete. Okay, that sure, <laughs> no problem. So yeah, it, it just has to happen. I think that when, about when I'm looking at instructions for things, like how to build a piece of furniture or, or a toy assembly 
whatever, I do sometimes have that reaction. Like, did you actually test this with anybody? Because I, I don't think I'm the only person who would find that very confusing <laughs> and, and am assembling this all wrong and feeling great frustration that I have to then undo it and then redo it again the opposite way. Absolutely. I just, I can't emphasize enough. There's no substitute for that. Whatever you think you know about other people's reaction, you don't, they'll always surprise you. And this doesn't have to be expensive. I mean, there are really expensive and elaborate user testing focus groups and stuff that you can do with the help of an expert, but you can also just pull in like your cousin, your mom, somebody down the hall from you at work. My business partner has several siblings and we have them test sometimes the worksheets and stuff that we use in workshops. And they'll say like, oh, I really noticed this or I really like was distracted by this. And we're like, what? That, you know, we weren't even thinking about that when we made the worksheet. And so it's like you can't get around your own bias as the author of all the stuff you know and all the stuff you want to happen. So yeah, it's invaluable, but it doesn't have to be hard or expensive. It can be informal. You can just like ask a friend. Well, so you mentioned so there are some principles that make all the difference in terms of readable writing mm-hmm. and the user experience dimensions. I'm guessing that's kind of like the visual type stuff. That's right. Can you lay it on us here in terms of what are some of the biggest principles that make all the difference? Yeah, absolutely. So if I had to pick I'll do maybe like a big two for each half of this equation. Because I think two things is always enough for people to learn and remember, in my opinion. (laughs) So two big ones for the information design piece, which you're right, that's all about how things look, how easy they look at a gut reaction. So when people first interact with a document, they're not beginning by actually reading the language. They're looking at it as a whole and they get a really like instantaneous impression, just like a gut reaction. This looks easy or this looks hard. So one of the fastest things you can do to make any document look a bit easier to your reader, which invites them in and makes them think like, yeah, I can deal with this document. It's not going to overwhelm me. It's just to put more empty negative space on the page. So Mm -hmm. you don't want to hit people with walls of text. My own personal, if I'm editing something and I see a paragraph that's going over about four lines on the page, I start to get nervous because when paragraphs get longer, what people do is they just skip the second half of the paragraph. They read the first line. They think, I think I've got it. I think I know what's in here. And they just skip it. So unless you're perfectly comfortable with that information being skipped, which is okay, that's a choice you could make as an editor. But if you're sitting there thinking like, no, they will read this. I have bad news for you. They won't. You know, they're not going to read a super long paragraph in most cases. So that's one of the quickest things you can do is just break up your chunks of information into smaller pieces so they don't look so visually overwhelming to the reader. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. The other one I would do at the visual level is bottom line up front. I don't know if you've heard this acronym before, the BLUF, B-L-U-F, stands for bottom line up front. Whatever it is that you came to this document to tell your readers, you need to get it really near the top in almost every type of business writing or utilitarian writing. So this is really different from the way we learned to write in school. It's also very different from what we learned about good storytelling. Yeah. So we're not leading people on, we're not raising their anticipation and then leading them on a journey of discovery and then like telling them the takeaway at the end. In plain language writing, it's like, here's the takeaway. Here's what you're going to find in this document. There's no mystery. There's no like unfolding of a peaking the curiosity and then like taking them on a journey. You're just telling them why they're here in the document. And then actually, if they want to dive into the details and the background and how you got here, that stuff comes after and they can read it or not. 
So thinking about flipping that on its head. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, do we want to use this in all contexts or if we're about to say something super unpleasant or controversial or that we anticipate our, our audience is going to vehemently disagree with us about, do we want to still do the bottom line upfront approach? So there's a lot of different scenarios I could imagine for this, but my first instinct in a blanket way would be, I would do a bluff there and say, I'm about to give you some difficult feedback. Okay. And then maybe you can like, I'm not saying you would start your communication with just like, your presentation was horrible. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Not like that, but I would let them know immediately, say they're opening an email, a message, a memo, whatever. They're going to see, I'm about to give you some feedback and we can talk about it more. Mm -hmm. Don't make them think like, oh, wow, why is Pete emailing me today? Maybe he just wants to say hi. And then like, you know, they're going into the experience, not knowing what's about to happen. Let them know why you're here right up front. That's what I would say for that. Okay. So that's a story on the user experience. And now how about sentence readability? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a ton of things that you could avoid and cut out of sentences to make them easier. If people want to go down that rabbit hole, you can check out plainlanguage.gov. It's the government's free resource on plain language, and there's many things you can do at the sentence level. But the biggest two that are going to impact reading difficulty at the sentence level are sentence length and complexity, Mm -hmm. and then word choice. And I think the word choice piece is probably the one that people expect. Like they're like, if I'm using these big, difficult words, these jargony terms, that's going to be hard for people. But they don't always remember that just the length and complexity of a sentence's structure is the other half of like the readability formula. So those two things together will impact the most. And I think that's especially useful for people to keep in mind if they must use some difficult terminology, because a lot of writers that I work with, they're like, oh, I have to use these science terms or these fintech terms or whatever it is. I can't get rid of them. So my writing will never be easy, but you can still make your sentences shorter, more declarative, more simple. And that will offset the impact of having to use some of those big words or, or specialized jargon. Now, what kind of sentence lengths are we talking about? Like, is there a rule of thumb in terms of this many words is getting long? Sure. So after about eight words, sentence comprehension tends to start dropping off. Now that's a very short sentence. So we would never recommend that every sentence be eight words, but you actually want to think about how much of the meaning of your sentence can people find in those first eight words. That's one thing we teach people is the main noun and the verb of a sentence happening within the first eight words. And then think about at least varying your sentence length. So can you throw people a couple of eight or 10 word sentences in the mix in between long sentences? So it's not just long sentence after long sentence. Okay. And then I'm curious about, sometimes it feels like, is the word appositives? I feel fancy from English class. If there is a phrase that's hanging out there. So for example, (laughs) if I were to say, Casey Mank, board member of the Center for Plain Language, comma, suggests using sentences around eight words. Like that a positive phrase, board member of the Center for Plain Language, in my brain, it almost feels bucketed together as one thing. But does that count? How does that count in in our word counts within sentences? Sure, yeah. So in that example, you are throwing a block in between the subject and the verb. Guilty. So... Yeah. So even though it might seem short, you know, your reader's brain is unconsciously looking for that structure. Casey Mank, 
recommends, whatever you said I recommend in that mm-hmm. example, that's what they're looking for. And when you put extra words in between the subject and the verb, you do create complexity that readers who have a lower literacy level, maybe English isn't their first language, they can get a little bit lost there. So again, the recommendation in plain language isn't that you never have a sentence like that with the appositive as you describe it, mm-hmm. but rather that you don't have tons of those, that you vary it up sometimes. So yes, in answer to your question, you are making it more complex by including that because you're separating the noun and the verb. So some readers will will trip over that a little bit and you could make it into two sentences. Mm-hmm. Casey Mank is a board member at yeah. the Center for Plain Language, period. She recommends whatever you said that I recommend. I love that notion of the two sentences. I remember when I took the, the GMAT exam, there's a section called sentence correction. And most of those sentences were long, nasty monsters. And <laughs> I kept looking for the option, split this terribly difficult sentence into two sentences. It never was an option. It was more like, which one is technically correct? Ah, gotcha. And so, yeah, I think that's often one of the the best solutions. Can you Can you share with us any other common fixes that just solve for a whole host of sins. Yeah. So there's one other one that we really like. So breaking things into two sentences is Mm -hmm. number one. In fact, when we get to the grammar section, that is literally number one. That's what we start with because it solves a lot of things. Like you said, another one, if you want to get a little deeper into sentence structure would be try to steer away from starting sentences with caveats or exceptions, Okay, which is really It's really common in business writing. Like if you start to look for it, you'll see it a lot where people will say, not only is this A, but it's also B. And that little added structure, things like that, or after considering all the factors and whatever, like including all that background information at the start of a sentence, Mm -hmm. that is really difficult because you're actually delaying when your reader can get to the main subject and verb of the sentence by a lot. And We have some great examples of this. I wish I had brought one because if I try to think of one on the spot, it'll be a train wreck. But it's like you're asking people to hold all these relationships in mind when they don't even know what to apply the relationships to yet. So in plain language writing, you want to start with the simple statement and then build the exception on after that. Because it's easy to apply an exception to something, but it's harder to keep an exception in mind as you're waiting to figure out what it will apply to. Does that make sense? Very much. Very much. Okay. And so then we got our, our principles, the, the word choices. Tell us, are there ways that we quickly measure this? Is the, is the word, Microsoft Word, flesh, Kincaid, readability, the thing, or how do we assess whether or not broad scale and automatically our sentence length and complexity is too much or our word choice is too complicated? Absolutely. So plain language folks in particular have a a complex relationship with those readability formulas Mm -hmm. because none of those formulas are perfect and they don't replace your human good judgment. So some plain language specialists really like them. Others feel like they oversimplify things too much. You know, sometimes like if you're using a flesh Kincaid tester and you take out the period at the end of the sentence, it will change the reading. But for a human reader, it wouldn't really change the experience of like seeing a bullet point that had a period versus no period, something oh, like that, yeah. right? So it's it's like there are they're not perfect. We love them as again not a be all end all of readability, but just as a way to get some kind of objective measurement or feedback. I mean, we often show them to writers. We're introducing them for the first time, and they might be really shocked to find that they're writing 
at like a postgraduate level in a document that because they are a specialist in whatever industry or niche they're in, they think this is just like a normal document, but it's actually incredibly difficult for someone in the general public to understand. So we love them for almost the shock value of writers getting to see what level they are truly writing at because they often don't know. Mm -hmm. And then just as, again, to see if the edits that you make are making a difference, it's nice to see that number go down from like grade 12 to grade 10 and say, okay, I did make a difference with my edits because sometimes you know, you're moving things around and you're writing and you're like, is this getting better or worse? I can't even tell. So we do like them. We use them. There are a ton of other tools I can recommend if you'd like to get into that now. Oh, please do. Sure. So we do love Flesh Kincaid. And as you mentioned, you can enable that in Word. WebFX.com is another one that we really like for that. You can test text based on a lot of different readability formulas. It's really good. There's two other tools that I'll recommend. These are all free, by the way. One is the Hemingway app. So it's a style editor and important to note, it's not a proofreading software. So don't assume that things are correct if they've been through the Hemingway app. It's only showing you style elements, but it's really good at catching lengthy, difficult sentences. And it will also give you a grade level as well. Then one other that I really like is called the Difficult and Extraneous Word Finder. (laughs) That's the name of it. I know it's kind of a silly long name. The website looks like it's still from 1990, but it actually still works. And It actually tags the words in your document based on how rare they are compared to most people's core vocabulary. And that part is okay. But what I love about that tool is actually the long word finder because it can just help you notice like, wow, that's a big word. Is there an easier alternative that I could swap in? So those are some some automated tools that we like. Mm hmm. Well, those are handy, beautiful tools. And and now I want to ask about tools along the lines of, of Grammarly and into the future of artificial intelligence, GPT-3, Jasper AI. Like, what do we think of all that? Yeah. So people will often ask us, is Grammarly putting you guys out of business training writers? No, we recommend Grammarly to all our clients. We recommend it in all our workshops as like a final polishing step because Grammarly is really sophisticated now. It can catch a ton of typos, misspellings, wordy sentences, stuff like that. And what that means to us, this is our take, you can spend less time on proofreading, which a machine can do, and you can save your human brain power for the more strategic questions like, who is the audience for this? What is actually the call to action that I want them to take? How am I going to get them to that step? How is this affecting our relationship, right? Those are questions that I still think are best suited for a human brain. The AI question is an interesting one, how much of that stuff those programs will be able to take over in the future. But for now, proofreading, I feel 100% confident outsourcing a lot of the proofing and the nitty gritty edits to something like Grammarly. And by the way, the free version is great. You don't have to pay for the paid version. The Hemingway app can tell you a lot of those things if you want to use that as a workaround for style. That's good. Well, then talking about the full-blown artificial intelligence stuff for a moment, I've played with it and and I'm impressed that at what it produces, although it's not accurate, it doesn't have any concern for truth or facts, yet it can mimic styles pretty well, I found. And so I've just been scratching my head a little bit like, what is the place of this in my writing life? Maybe there's no place at all. Or maybe it's just to get some opening inspiration to get the wheels turning a little bit. How do you think about it? Yeah. So I think one thing that could be 
helpful or interesting there is that people get really stuck staring at a blank page sometimes. Not if you have to send an email necessarily, but I'm talking more about if you're writing some sort of content, like a blog or something, you might just be sitting there staring like, I can't get started. And we try to teach people ways to just get out of their own way and get a terrible first draft Yeah, because that's the thing you need. You need a terrible first draft and then you can edit. Actually, all of our writing workshops, it's a little misleading because they're actually editing workshops. It's about how to make something better. It's not about how to get a terrible draft on the page because really you just have to do that. So I like the possibility that it could produce a pretty terrible block of text for you. And Mm -hmm. then you could come in and, you know, maybe it would help with some of that writer's block. But on the flip side of that, one concern that I would have is there's a really terrible temptation. And we see this a lot with ineffective business writing, workplace writing to, if you have an existing document, And you're writing something new and you think, oh, somebody already wrote some messaging on that. Let me just copy and paste it. Yay, now I'm done. But often because you're repurposing it for a different audience and context, it's not good. It's not going to work. It's not going to be effective. And the temptation to copy and paste leads to a lot of bad writing. And when we look at it, it's like, well, who's the audience? What are you trying to get them to do? Okay. Why is this here? And people will say, oh, well, it's there because it was in the original copy that I got, you know, the source material. Well, it would have been better if you just started over with the current audience and, and context in mind. So it worries me that it would encourage people to just say like, look, I have something, you know, and then the temptation to just kind of keep it and not start over as much as they need to. Well said. That reminds me of when you when you ask Siri a question and she doesn't really have the capability of giving you an answer, but she's like, I found this on the web. <laughs> yes. And it's like, well, yeah, that's kind of related to what I'm asking, but it isn't really the answer. And so, yeah, I do see that a lot in terms of like the lazy business writing. It's like, that's not really an answer, but it's tangential to answer. Like I asked someone, how do I know that you're actually going to pay a claim insurance company if, if it push comes to shove? And they say, well, we've got a great financial rating. It's like, well, that's, that's good, but that's not really the answer. And so I, I think a lot of business writing seems to fall into that zone of it's kind of relevant to what we're trying to do here, but it's not really a bullseye that we're going for. Absolutely. The temptation, if you've got something, the temptation to copy and paste it is so strong, but usually does not lead to the outcome that you want. Mm-hmm. Well, tell us a little bit about the audience response tone approach. How does that unfold? Absolutely. Yeah. So first I have to give a big shout out to Professor David Lipscomb from Georgetown University, who is the inventor of the art tool, which we use. And the audience response tone tool helps you think about that big strategic piece. We start all our workshops, all our coaching sessions with it. And I can tell you that people always want to jump over it. You know, I'm asking them questions like, who's going to read this? Who are they? What are they going to do? And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come tell me if I have a comma splice here. And it's funny, like people always want to dive into the editing of the actual content, but if they don't take, it's like slow down to speed up a tiny bit and actually think about who will read this, what will they do with it? If you don't get those things right, it doesn't matter how polished your text is. It's not going to create the impact that you want it to. So the art, I mean, going through the pieces, we hope it's pretty self-explanatory. So you already said the pieces audience, who is this for? We encourage people to think as in-depth as they possibly can about one reader So not a crowd of a thousand people, but just one person, even if they're a representative reader. And Pete, you actually do this amazingly well on your booking page for podcast guests. I noticed this. I wanted to, I wanted to bring it up. You say, you know, imagine our ideal listener and you kind of have this profile of her. Like she's this, you know, mid-career young woman and she's interested in these topics. And 
maybe that person exists or maybe she doesn't, but I could see her reading that description that you put there, right? So that's so much better than just saying like listeners, <laughs> listeners from Apple Podcasts. Yeah, the listeners. Yeah, that doesn't help you tailor the content. So doing something like that, really getting in the shoes of the audience, thinking, I like to ask two questions about the audience. How much do they know about your topic? You can say nothing or you can say everything, but just know how much they know. And then how much do they care? Because people who really care are more motivated readers. They're willing to put in a lot of effort to make their way through a difficult, dense document because they deeply care about the information. People who don't care will not put in any effort. So if you don't spoon feed it to them, they'll just delete it, not read it. Okay, see, I love that so much. And you've just answered a mystery I've been wrestling with for a while, which is how are so many top-selling books about chess so poorly written? Uh, How is this even possible? It's possible (laughs) because the person who aspires to improve at chess is highly motivated, more so than I am. I was like, this is hard. This is complicated to read. I'm I'm doing something else. (laughs) Uh, So I haven't advanced as much. But that that does explain much. And then you can find that in all kinds of domains, like people want to get really good at options trading. So they're reading an options trading blog, which is very difficult to read. And yet, if the folks are are thinking about all the dollars they could be... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> be printing up by with their enhanced options trading skills, they'll put up with it. So I, I really like that. Thank you. I love that example. Yeah. So I love that example of the chess books. I can only imagine how difficult those are. <laughs> it's Yeah. <laughs> I can only imagine what that's like to read. But, you know, it's written by someone who loves chess yeah. and it's read by someone who loves chess. And both of those people are in agreement that they are going to put in the work to like figure that out. Yeah, so totally. That's great. That's great. <laughs> But most of the people we're communicating with in the workplace are not an aspiring chess master, right? They're like, what do you want right now? Why are you in my inbox? Like, I don't have time to read this, you know? So thinking about how much, yeah, thinking about how motivated your reader really is to put in effort. So that's the A piece, the audience. The response, you can think in a couple of different ways. What are they going to know once they're done reading? How are they going to feel? And then what are they going to do? So important to note that not everything you write has a do piece. Sometimes you truly are just giving FYI educating people. You're maybe trying to change their feelings about something, but there's nothing you want them to do when they finish reading. But if there is something you want them to do, click this link, donate money, sign the petition, pick a meeting time. That's when it becomes really important to make it as easy as humanly possible for them to do that thing, because there's a great chance that they're going to give up if it becomes hard or confusing. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then the tone? Yep. The tone piece is going to be specific to the audience and the response. So this isn't just, what's my tone in general? It's always context dependent, which is why it comes last. So for this particular audience that we're talking to about this particular topic and the exact response we want them to do, what's the tone that's going to move that audience to that response? So it's not just like, what's a good business tone? It's today, right now in this document, what's the appropriate tone? We usually ask people to pick three or four adjectives to describe the tone. At first, it's hard to get people to be creative and go beyond like informative, clear, professional. Mm -hmm. Okay, I hope everything you write is informative, clear, and professional. That's the baseline. But what else? You know, what else can we pull out around tone? And that becomes useful later when you're editing because you can read every sentence you wrote and ask yourself, is this sentence, whatever you're doing, right? Is it enthusiastic? Is it cordial? Do I sound expert? And do I sound warm? You can really filter your entire document through that tone if it's specific. But if it's just, this is going to be professional and clear, like it becomes harder to actually make editing decisions based on a vague tone. 
And last thing about that is it makes it easier for other people to edit your work and give you feedback on your work. If you can tell them, here's the audience, here's the response I want from that audience, and here's the tone I'm trying to hit. Do you think this document will have that impact and meet those three things? Rather than if you just hand someone you work with a document and you say, hey, is this good? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're not going to get helpful or specific feedback from them. You're just going to get them fixing that one semicolon in the bottom paragraph, which isn't what you really need. So I really love it when (laughs) this is, I guess, my sense of humor. I'd like to apply just wildly inappropriate tones to different bits of writing. Like I think I saw a cigar catalog once and it had a lot of things like winner, winner, chicken dinner. These won't impress the muckety mucks in the boardroom, but at under a bucket stick, it's a perfect yard guard. It's like, who is this guy talking? <laughs> and it cracks me up. But then I just try to imagine taking that tone and, and putting that on this podcast, <laughs> like a podcast is episode description for Casey. Like, well, what, what is going on here? It just feels weird. And yet if you're in the mood to kick back and leisurely select a cigar, it might be perfect. Exactly. So I think that's good. Well, maybe you could tell me, Casey, I guess the tone that I want is I want folks to feel inspired by a sense of transformative possibility when they read a podcast episode description, like, oh, wow. That sounds awesome. I want to know that click play. I guess that's in the audience we talked about in, in terms of professionals and and such. So do I just use the word inspiring for tone or is there a, a, a copywriter word I want to be using for this? No, I love that because it doesn't have to just be a single word because okay. crucially, the most important audience for this audience response tone thing is you're just using it for yourself. This isn't like a public facing thing. It's just the art for you to get on the right page. So if you want to say to yourself every time you write the description for an episode, I want people to feel like, yeah, I can do this at work. That means something to you and you can use it. And I imagine you could give that to a colleague and say, like, here's the vibe I want. Does it come across? Right. I had one person I worked with, one writer who said, you know, she's writing an email and people had ignored her instructions several times. And mm-hmm. one of the one of the tone things that she told me she was shooting for is I'm drawing a line in the sand. Now, that is not a single adjective, but it meant something to her. It definitely meant something to me. And we kept that in mind. I'm drawing a line in the sand. So if there's something like that, that works for you to like, think about the tone, I think it's fantastic. That's good. Certainly. If it's just you, the writer that you're thinking about, then you can say whatever you want. And uh, then I guess we do. Whoa. It's like, this is so meta in writing the creative brief itself for your collaborator. You would also be thinking about that audience as, as copywriter or, or TV and their response and tone. The audience is a copywriter. The response is, I want them to say, yes, that sounds like a sweet job I'll take. (laughs) And the tone is, I don't know, this should be a lot of fun. So cool. Well, Casey, boy, this is exciting stuff. I could dork out forever. Tell me any other top do's and don'ts you want to make sure to mention before we hear about your favorite things. Sure. One writing problem and writing piece of advice that I see a lot and that I would love to give people is because people know what I do. Sometimes people in my personal life, my friends or family will say like, Hey, help me wordsmith this. I'm about to send something important. It could be a text, an email, job application, whatever. Like help me wordsmith this. And I'm like, okay, well, what are you trying to say? And they'll say something to me verbally. And I I'll say like, why don't you say that? And I think people are, people are often disappointed because when they come to me, they're like wordsmith this with me. And usually I'm just like, well, why don't you just say that? 
And I think when people, when people sit down to write, especially professionally, like workplace writing, especially for things that might be important, they go into this weird zone where they just start reaching for all the big words that they know and like jamming them into sentences. And, you know, you get people sending messages like, I would love to actualize an opportunity to network with you. And like, if you took someone who was really confident and far along in their career, they would send that to someone as, hey, let's chat, right? Mm -hmm. Like people who are actually really know about a topic and they're very confident, they'd say like, hey, we'd love to chat. But people who are right out of college are like, I would love to actualize this opportunity to discuss with you. And nothing signals that you are not confident more than like jamming sentences full of big fancy words. So I would love to kind of curb that impulse in people. Something weird happens, like they'll say it beautifully out loud. And then as soon as their fingers touch the keyboard, they just kind of like make it weird with all these big words. So I would love to flag that for people and start noticing if you're doing that. Stop it. Yeah. Oh, that sounds <laughs> actualized opportunity. That really resonates. I've gotten a number of emails that folks wanted to explore the potential of creating a collaborative partnership with me. Uh-huh. It's like, I don't even know what you mean. I think that's the default response is just, I don't know what this is. And then move to the next email. And I think that's an unfortunate reality in terms of when, when clarity is missing, often the response you get is just no response whatsoever. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Sure. So this is attributed to Elmore Leonard, who was a novelist and a screenwriter. He did Westerns. And he said, I like to leave out all the parts that readers skip. <laughs> and I'd like to adjust that a little bit for people, which is like, try to leave out more of the parts readers skip. Yeah. I think leave out the parts readers skip. It might sound kind of daunting, but can you just like do a little better. I always try to tell people that, like, just take out a few more of the fluffy pieces. So leave out the parts readers will skip. Mm -hmm. And could you share a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? Yes. So we draw really heavily on research from the Nielsen Norman group. And one of my favorite couple things that people could start with there, I mean, you could read everything on the site and you would probably emerge as an amazing communicator on the other side of that. Um, but if you want a couple, <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Take a, take a deep dive. But if you want a couple things to start with, I would recommend the impact of tone on readers' perceptions of brand voice, which is just, it really shows some interesting research about how tone impacts people's reactions to what they read. And then the other one would be, how little do users read? Mm -hmm. <laughs> to really get you in the mood for that, like, don't include stuff that people are just going to skip over. Okay. And a favorite book? Sure. We have a bunch on writing that we often recommend. Letting Go of the Words by Ginny Reddish, who is a plain language educator. Made to Stick by Chip and Dan Heath, Brief by Joe McCormick, Elements of Style by Strunk and White, and then not a book, but again, plainlanguage.gov, free government resource on clear communication. We recommend that almost more than any book. Okay. And is there a favorite tool you use regularly to be awesome at your job? So just the ones that I recommended already would be my go-tos, Hemingway Editor, Hemingway App, Grammarly, of course, which we do like, and we do co-sign people using Grammarly, especially in your emails. It can just fix those typos for you. Difficult and extraneous word finder. Those are pretty much the big writing tools that we like to recommend to people. Okay. And a favorite habit? Sure. So I do uh, a productivity habit that I don't think it came from anywhere else. It's my own thing. You've probably mm -hmm. heard of like Pomodoro, right? Which I think is yeah. 25 on and five off. But when I have a task that I'm deeply procrastinating on, I like to start out by doing five minutes on and five minutes off. 
which people have said to me, like, that's not enough time on, but it really helps me get into something at first. If I think like, I'm going to do this for five minutes and then I get to watch Netflix for five minutes. Cause I feel like you can do anything hard for five minutes. And usually what ends up happening is I get into like making my PowerPoint or something and the alarm goes off and I just snooze it. And I'm like, no, I'm rolling now. I want to keep working on it. But for the first, like getting into something that feels too big or difficult, five minutes on five minutes off can kind of like get me moving. So Mm -hmm. that's my method. (laughs) And is there a key nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with folks? They quote it back to you often. Yes. So one that has come up in workshops is like, if you're saying everything is important, you're saying nothing is important. And when it comes to writing, that can manifest in a couple of different ways. But one is like, if you're bolding key information and you just like bold an entire paragraph, you're no longer emphasizing something, right? Or if we're working with someone and we say, okay, you really need to fig- like figure out what's most important and then delete the other stuff. And they just say like, no, everything's important. I need the reader to read every word. Well, that's not going to happen. So if you're saying everything is important, then nothing is important. All right. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Probably connect with me on LinkedIn, or you can email me, casey at boldtype.us. And I love to get bad writing of the internet. So if you are just like going about your daily life and you see something really poorly written online that's public facing, please send it to me. I can use it as before and afters in my workshops. Oh, and Casey, I suppose we should have asked, what is bold type and how can you help us? (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay. Not the bottom line up front at all, huh? (laughs) (laughs) So my company, Bold Type, as you might have guessed from everything we've talked about, teaches workplace writing skills. That's the only type of training we do. We do workshops on plain language writing, obviously, email writing, how to edit your own writing, how to give other writers feedback on the writing that they have produced, how to be better at getting feedback on your writing presentation, PowerPoint writing. So, and we do some executive coaching as people are moving into more writing intensive roles at work and things like that as well. All right. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? I do. For the next week or so, could you try to cut every email that you send in half? And I know that might sound hard, but think about if you've ever been asked to write a professional bio for whatever you're doing and someone says, hey, I need like a 50 word bio and you have to like cut your bio down. After you've done that, it's actually hard to go back to the longer bio because you realize like I didn't need all of this. So every email you send, can you take out about half the words? You probably can. Mm -hmm. That's my challenge. That's good. Well, Casey, thank you. This has been a treat. I wish you much fun and good writing. Thanks so much, Pete. This was really fun. I really love what Casey had to say about those fundamental questions. Who will read this and what will they do with it as the fundamental guiding lights of any piece of writing you're producing? And that informs everything. Hey, could you look at this for me? Hey, could you proofread this? Hey, could you check this out? It makes all the difference. And situating that there first and then getting some input from a third party, ideally someone who fits into that audience, is just irreplaceable. Great stuff from Casey. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP829. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. 
Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 